Hey folks, welcome to the 7,314th Dark Horse live stream podcast. It is Saturday here. It's actually the 169th podcast, is that correct? Indeed it is. Um, nonetheless, either way, I'm still Dr. Brett Weinstein, you are Dr. Heather Hying, and we are going to chat about some of... Chat is no longer a term that we are ever going to use. We are going to discuss some of the... Uh, the circumstances of the era and um, events of the day and uh, all those sorts of things. All right. <laughs> I tripped myself up. I said chat. My blood pressure leapt about four times. And uh, I'm back. I feel I'm, I'm calm again. So there's that. All right. Um, we're going to we, we have a lot to talk about. We're going to be relatively uh, rapid here today. Uh, we are not going to be doing a Q&A today and we're not going to be back here next week so you will see us next two weeks from now um but we do have uh a number of interesting things to talk about today twitter and sports bras and wow games. yeah mm, yeah okay not the natural triumvirate you would expect no but no no the big three i guess three four i mean depending on how you count sports bras why would you count them as two, except for the obvious reason that it can't be that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we aren't digressing because this is what we're doing. This is what we do. This is We this. digress for a living. <laughs> I hope I hope that's not true. Uh, okay. So uh, join us now and then two weeks from now. Uh, and, and we will have stories to tell, I think. Yes. By then. By then. Uh, so this week on Natural Selections, which is where I write weekly on my Substack, I wrote about um, my father who died 10 years ago this week. And uh, I'm going to show you a tiny bit of that once we start talking in the main part of the podcast. But I encourage you to go there and uh, truly appreciate subscribers there, both free and, and paying subscribers. We have at our store, which I still failed to put the url in here zach and i'm trying to get your attention the url for the store is store.darkhorsepodcast.org thank you store.darkhorsepodcast.org uh we have pins for instance dark horse pins uh which you can uh put on yourself and use as a bat signal to others that you, they are you can also use them to deflate chinese spy balloons I feel like you'd have to get really, really close, at which point oh, yeah. there might be a better approach to dealing with Chinese spy balloons. No, that was totally implied that you would have to get really close, but... Okay, okay I'm uh, okay. derailing okay. conversations right and left, so that's about uh, par for the course. Yes. Uh, we are supported by you when you uh, subscribe to Natural Selections, when you read our book, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. Uh, and when you subscribe to our YouTube channel, our Odyssey channels, our, um, our Dark Horse Podcast Clips channels on both YouTube and Odyssey, like, share what we do uh, with other people. Right now I saw uh, today's clip that just got put out was our discussion of, um, of the madness um, that um, happened to Kelly J. Keene uh, in... Gosh, I'm not forgetting. It was both Australia and New Zealand uh, where the, the, the madness happened. Uh, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So there's a clip out now on that. Uh, and sometimes those clips are um, easier to share for, for people. Um, you can also join our Patreons where in two weeks we will be having our monthly private Q&A. Right now you can ask questions at mine. 
and um, and also join our Discord server where people are having fantastic conversations, virtual happy hours, karaoke, all that. And of course, we have sponsors whom we choose carefully and uh, whom we truly appreciate. We start with the uh... <laughs> Oh no. If you're going to start reading my notes to myself, this is going to become a very confusing podcast space. So the, the, the vast majority of our audience, as far as we can tell, um, don't watch, they only listen. And so that just dead air will be utterly meaningless to, to those, to the vast majority of the audience. Um, you were writing something, I looked over, as I, as I sometimes do, and I, I had two simultaneous reactions, both of which stopped me short. They were, that's legible. <laughs> when did that start? And secondly, but it's not English. <laughs> so what does it mean? I can read that and can't interpret it. Oh, wow. That's not the usual order of things. So I'm sure we will hear about whatever that means. Um, that, uh, I, mean, I think you've written yourself an acronym reminder of some sort here. Uh, so it's just a series of letters <laughs> without, um, without the language associated with it. Yeah, hopefully it. it's enough that when we get there, I will still remember what they mean, which yeah. is not always the case. But, sure, sure. Uh, but at least it's legible. I can tell you what the letters are. If but I you can tell struggle with them, I will ask. Yeah, amazing. Congratulations on the newfound legibility. Well, thank you. You are welcome. Okay, our sponsors this week are House of Macadamia's MD Hearing Aid and Vivo Barefoot. So without further ado, let us launch into those. House of Macadamia's is our first sponsor this week. Tree nuts are delicious and nutritious. They're generally high in fat and low in carbohydrates. Unlike what various food pyramids and government agencies might have led you to believe, high-fat, low-carb foods are increasingly understood to be both satiating and good for you. But each species of nut is different, and for many of us, macadamias are the best. They take a very long time to grow, however, and because they are both rare and highly sought after, they have the dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive nut. Between the taste and the health benefits, they're worth it. They have even fewer carbohydrates than most other nuts, for instance, half of what cashews or pistachios have and two-thirds of what almonds have, which makes them the perfect snack for breaking a daily fast and controlling blood glucose. They're also uniquely rich in omega-7s, including especially palmitoleic acid, an unsaturated fat that has been linked to natural collagen production, fat loss, and heart health. Uh, I almost read fat health and heart loss, which would not be useful, <laughs> but I can assure you that there are no cases, at least in the scientific literature to date, of macadamia nuts causing that. Instead, uh, <laughs> that requires with the, the alien abduction, condition. heart loss. It's not a common medical condition. No, it really Mostly isn't. Mostly cows. Especially but... in, you know, prompted by a, a dietary intake. Yes, that's uh, that'd be a hell of a diet. It would. It would. Uh, and House of Macadamia is intent on making this amazing food accessible to everyone. They have partnered with more than 90 farmers in Africa and now make one-of-a-kind vegan, keto, and paleo snacks. These include their dark chocolate dipped macadamias and a delicious assortment of bars made with 45% macadamia nuts and flavors including salted caramel and chocolate coconut. But our favorite product of theirs is the simple salted macadamias made with Namibian sea salt. They're amazing. We love them and think that you will too. And House of Macadamias also makes a delicious macadamia nut oil, which is 100% cold-pressed, rich in monounsaturated fatty acids, and has a higher smoke point than olive oil, so is well-suited to high-heat cooking and baking. It's also delicious. Our House of Academias highly recommends House of Macadamias, macadamias for all of your macadamic needs. 
Go to www.houseofmacadamias.com and use code DARKHORSE for a 20% discount on every order. Plus, Dark Horse listeners will receive a complimentary four-ounce bag of macadamias when they order three or more boxes of any macadamia product. Once again, that's www.houseofmacadamias.com. Use code DARKHORSE for 20% off every order. You won't be sorry. Our second sponsor this week is MD Hearing Aid. MD Hearing Aid makes high-quality, simple, and effective hearing aids for a tiny fraction of what most hearing aids cost, helping bring audio clarity and capacity to people who might not otherwise be able to afford it. While we don't have need for hearing aids ourselves, we have a friend who does, and we asked her to assess this product carefully and honestly. She did, and her testimonial is at the end of this ad. MD Hearing Aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. He kept the price low by simplifying the product, removing several rarely needed components. And he made a product that aims to fit so well, no one will know you're wearing it. Other features include rechargeable batteries that last up to 30 hours, water resistance in up to three feet of water in their Volt Plus model, and you don't need a prescription to get one. MD Hearing Aid has cut out the middleman, so you buy your hearing aid directly from the source where audiologists and licensed hearing specialists are available seven days a week. Everyone can empathize with what it feels like to be left out of a conversation that others are enjoying. Here's a testimonial from that friend of ours who has substantial hearing loss and who relies on hearing aids. We asked her to try this product, and this is what she said, quote, With my particular type of hearing loss, a deep male voice in a noisy room is the hardest situation for me to hear and understand. I wore the MD hearing aid to have a conversation with a deep-voiced man in a room with a lot of white noise. The MD hearing aid passed the test, as my conversation partner's voice was clear and understandable. At a price point of well under $1,000, I was amazed at how effective they are. MD Hearing Aid is bringing affordable hearing to hundreds of thousands of people, people who might not otherwise be able to afford high-quality hearing aids. And MD Hearing Aid recently cut their price in half. So if you want MD Hearing Aid's smallest hearing aid yet, go to mdhearingaid.com and use promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy one, get one deal. A pair of hearing aids costs just $149.99, plus Dark Horse listeners receive a free extra charging case, $100 value. So, head to mdhearingaid.com and use promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy one, get one deal, a pair of hearing aids for only $149.99. All right. Our final sponsor this week is Vivo Barefoot, shoes made for feet. Everybody should try these shoes. Most shoes are made for someone's idea of feet, but not Vivo's. Vivo's are made by people with feet who know how to use them. Are we sure they all have feet? Actually, you know, in this era, we might want to check, but I believe we have seen no reason to suspect they don't. And they certainly, there are enough people in the company who have feet, know how to use them, that they design a hell of a great shoe. Mm -hmm. That we know. Very good. All right. Mm -hmm. So all those caveats have now been taken care of. I feel somewhat relieved. (laughs) Uh, All right. And word is spreading. We have been asked by strangers if the shoes we are wearing are as good as they have heard. Yep, they are. They really, really are. Here at Dark Horse, we love these shoes. They are beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on is amazing, and they cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They are fantastic. Our feet are the product of millions of years of evolution. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot. Modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health crisis. People move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. Enter Vivo Barefoot. Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. 
foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. The number of people wearing Vivo Barefoots is growing. Once people start wearing new shoes, they don't seem to stop. Vivo Barefoot has a great range of footwear for kids and adults and for every activity from hiking to training and everyday wear. They're a certified B Corp that is pioneering regenerative business principles, and their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural and recycled materials with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild on it. Go to vivobarefoot.com and use the code DARKHORSE15 to get an exclusive offer, 15% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T.com and use the code DARKHORSE15 at checkout. We have uh, pretty broad topics today. Would you like to start or should I? Why don't you start? Okay. Um... Hmm. Instagram influencer, trans woman, Dylan Mulvaney, hmm. whom I think we have mentioned here before, and I have written about on my Substack in Natural Selections a little bit as just a, a sort of a sidebar, uh, is you came to prominence uh, with his... 365 or girls of dayhood i think is what it was called no really not <laughs> days of girlhood i think is i think is what it, the the sort of project was called the movie will be called girls of day <laughs> which is a pretty good time. i don't know what it means but it, you know i really feel like i should just give up now <laughs> i'm not it's not going to be a clear day it's not going to be an easy day um and that's on me um so uh has had the amazingly acronymed ffs facial feminization <laughs> surgery uh and uh, says that he's on cross-sex hormones um although some have suggested that you know why is there no shape change in his body and why is there still five o'clock shadow and all of this stuff and there's been no other surgery other than the ffs the facial feminization surgery uh, which was which happened just before uh, 365 um, days of girlhood, uh, and and you know this was someone who was already in his 20s and is is a very skilled entertainer, actually, incredibly skilled entertainer. And if you go back to before um, he began his days of girlhood thing, uh, you have him trying out being a, like a safari tour leader on Instagram and uh, you know he looks fabulous and uh, I don't know that he knows anything about animals at all but um, you know he's he's and he's a singer and a dancer um, although to that point um, the most recent the reason that we're talking about him right now um, would suggest that he's never done anything athletic in his life but um, he's extraordinarily polarizing because um, the world has decided, the, the half of the world, it seems, it seems like half the world, although I really still can't believe that half of the world actually looks at this, um, well, twink, you know, he's a, he's a very thin, very slim, attractive, slight gay man um, who's dressing up in accoutrement and, uh, and sort of making 
cultural choices that look traditionally feminine. And half of the weird world seems to be going like, you go, girl. Like, you're a woman now. And he's not. He's just not. Including invitation to the White House on the basis of his bravery. <sighs> yes. Right. So um, he's been getting a lot of sponsorships from various organizations. Uh, Bud Light. <laughs> Bud, Bud Light is sponsoring him, and he shows up in a bubble bath, and this just outraged the the Bud Light drinking part of the Western world. Uh, and when that happened, I thought, and, and then afterwards he put out a Instagram video in like a jeweled thing, drinking Bud Light, claiming not to know what March Madness stood for. And I watched that and thought, man, he's good. He's a really good troll. He's really good. Uh, and again, not untalented, like an actually talented, talented guy. But then after the Bud Light fiasco kerfuffle you know lots of people getting irate about it um nike put him in a sports bra and is using him to advertise sports bras and you know there's been a lot this happened i don't know a couple few days ago and there's been a lot of hue and cry of course and you know the point largely is Dude doesn't have breasts. No reason for a bra there, right? But I think it's it's even worse than that, to use your framing, right? Wow. It's, it's even worse than that, which is um, dude doesn't have sports, right? Like, uh, bras can be a, a fashion choice, right? For, for many women, not doing... Um, harder, heavy, or bouncy work, especially if they're small-breasted. A bra may be a choice um, that is culturally expected, that makes them feel better about how they look, but it really, it can be primarily about fashion, especially if you're small-breasted, especially if you're not um, engaging in, um, in a lot of athletic activity. Um, but a sports bra is specifically something that was created to help women not damage their breast tissue when they are, for instance, running. And um, so I did, um, I, just, I just did a Google Scholar search on the term sports bras biomechanical analysis. And uh, so if, if you're not aware of Google Scholar, Google Scholar is, um, it's not as good as some of the um, search engines, the academic indexing, uh, search engines that are behind paywalls that you usually have to be an academic to find, but it's 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 quite good. Uh, and here, actually, you can just show my screen. Uh, so sports bras, biomechanical analysis, without any, I didn't use any Boolean operators. I wasn't trying to be specific in any way. Um, you know, there's like 20, over 22,000 results. Wow. Right? Right? That's so, so, and I don't know, I didn't, I didn't go down into, you know, 5,000, 10,000. I don't know what happens down there, right? But there's, there's a lot of people writing about what is it that sports bras should be doing, could be doing, are doing? How could they be better? What actually is the support that's needed? And um, even if you divide those results by those that refer to the left side and those that defer to the right side, it's still a huge number it's, of studies it's, or it's still analyses or whatever they are. Exactly. So here's just one. Okay. And I just, I, I, I went into a few of them and here's just one. This is published in the journal Ergonomics in 2021. Uh, it's got uh, four authors. It's called How the Characteristics of Sports Bras Affect Their Performance. Uh, and, uh, the you know, it's 
it's a decent piece of research, right? The, the final sentence of the abstract is encapsulation style padded cups, nylon, adjustable underband, and high neck drop accounted for 37.1% of breast movement reduction variants. Findings facilitate high performance sports bra development and informed consumer choice. Okay. So, you know, we, we have people in this case who understand that sports bras are an item that shows up to solve a particular problem. Can I have my screen back here for a second? Um, and there, you know, there are some papers that are um, in that same search that reveals more than 22,000, um, a little sillier. Um, this one is only silly because um, the authors are clearly not native English language speakers. So I'm just gonna read the beginning of this abstract, uh, which was a, a conference proceeding published as, as a conference proceeding in 2009. It's called Studies of Sports Bra Based on Biomorphic Analyses of Females' Breasts. Um, and you can see the authors appear to be Chinese. Um, sports bras are specifically designed to offer appropriate amount of support and protection for breasts during moderate to intense physical activities. So far, so good. They are the most important instruments for athletes, both from the excising satisfaction point and comfortable aspect. It's well proved that the more rigorous the exercises that athletes take, the serious the breasts injuries could be caused without the assistance of outside support, especially for the plump ones. There it is. There it is. So that's just that's amusing. But like still, the English isn't right. And if I were to try to write something in Chinese, it would be far, far worse. So I'm not attacking these guys. I don't even know if they're guys. Uh, I'm just saying that, you know, the research on the biomechanical advantages and as aspects of sports bras is, are, is being done throughout the world. All right. <laughs> especially the plump ones. Especially the plump ones. Especially sure. the plump ones. Um, a couple points. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. One, that abstract will stand as a kind of time capsule. What, uh, you know international science looked like before gpt right because of course G G gpt could rewrite that abstract and you'd never know right you'd never know you'd never know but and, um, and you'd lose out on especially the plump one especially the right exactly that's <laughs> really needs to be there mm -hmm. drives the point home it does but uh the other thing is look sports bra is actually kind of an interesting category because in some ways bras uh i mean I don't know, but I'm assuming that never bras are never having worn mm -hmm. even one, even half of one. But uh, never having been so inspired, never once. I can say that we've not talked about this, but I know you, it to you be can true. Be certain. Mm -hmm. But yeah. in any case, the the point is, bras pre presumably originate at least heavily biased in the direction of augmenting this native advertisement of uplift, right. Highlight. Shaping, yes. Shaping, mm -hmm. right, all of that. Um, and it is the liberation of women mm -hmm. that causes the need for a bra that is optimized around something else, which yes. is the capacity of women to do uh, vigorous things in which bouncing breasts are not a good thing, right? right? So anyway, the whole idea that these things are the opposite of an ornament, these are something mm -hmm. that you do to take something, an ornament that natural selection has stuck women with and in some ways hobbled them, mm -hmm. right? And to... I don't see you tracking a big tail around, do I? No, <laughs> exactly. <hell>? Right, no. <laughs> I've always wondered if nice rack was a reference to antlers. <laughs> I don't know. I think it must be. It's very clever, if so. But 
but it does have that analogy. In, in any case, there's something interesting about the idea that sports bras are themselves about deornamentation and mm. increasing capacity. And yet here we find ourselves in a place where through some, uh, I think, new level of incoherence, we have a person who doesn't need this thing because he wasn't stuck with this ornament who um, is now becoming an iconic... Okay, but to, yeah. we'll get back there. Okay. Actually, to exactly the point that you just made, though, I have I have a section here from Runner's World. Okay. From a from an article published in 2017, which you can show my screen here, a brief history of the sports bra. So mm -hmm. this is not this is not a piece of science. This is just a review. Um, again, published in 2017, 40 years ago, an ordinary runner invented what she couldn't find in stores. What happened since then is a story of women supporting women. And just scroll down and find this one paragraph here, almost without exception, again, written in Runner's World in 2017, almost without exception, the women of the first running boom were small-breasted because they had to be. Mm. Even the famous Runner's High couldn't anesthetize the pain of swirling D-cups. And although jog bras opened the door to a whole wave of would-be runners, the stretchy pullovers didn't deliver enough support for bigger sizes. So this this is this is exactly the point you were just making, and uh, there's a for instance there's a company Title Nine, of course Title Nine has now become the, you know the 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 original 1970s legislation has now become weaponized. Yes, the Trojan um, horse through which all kinds of nonsense. But orig but originally it, I I still believe that it did something very honorable and important for. Um, Female athletes, um, especially you know, girls being able to um, have access to uh, competitive sports, and um, in that vein, uh, the company Title IX, which makes basically athletic uh, wear for women, um, has a has a remarkable diversity of and detail about the different kinds of sports bras for not just what size you are, what level of you know fitness you are in what what size your breasts are but also what is the activity you're going to be engaging in because if you're you know it always has great pictures of, of women doing awesome things you know surfing and um, bicycling and you know being outside doing doing sports uh, and you know the fact is that if you're jogging um, and you have large breasts you need different kind of support than if you are um, than if you are surfing or bicycling right so all of that said uh, and I'm not actually going to go ahead and show um, show Dylan Mulvaney doing his little sports bra dance for Nike, uh, but it's it's ridiculous. Like he 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 looks ridiculous, and it's not athletic. And um, yes, everyone has already said like everyone who's commented on this basically is like, oh, doesn't have breasts. Why does he need it? But my point here is this additional one, which is. You're not engaging in anything athletic in any way, and you are acting a caricature. You are you you are acting the part of a caricature of a woman who um, thinks it would be cool to be sporty, but doesn't actually know what that means. So this is this is, and you know I have increasingly been using this word, and I didn't used to see it very many places, but this is misogyny. This this is a belittling and a caricature of what a woman is to put a guy in a sports bra and have him do like fake stretches like kind of yoga-ish things and suggest that that's what sports bras are for and that that's what women doing athletic activities looks like so uh the way you ultimately phrase that i i agree with you it is the putting of dylan mulvaney 
in the sports bra that is the offensive thing here. I still am un, uh, effectively what this is is exactly like a paper mask being required to prevent COVID, right? Yeah. The point is, yeah. this is mm-hmm. about fealty. Do you, are you going to call this out? Really? Mm-hmm. Are you going to call this out, implying that you think that that's a man and not a woman? Because if you think that that's a man and not a woman, then you know what you are. You are a transphobe, right? <laughs> so there is that, and this corporation wishes to avail itself of that little tool, because at this moment it sees that tool as uh, advancing its cause, mm-hmm. presumably its... Um, fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders. Um, But from the point of view, and I wanted to ask you about this, from the point of view of Dylan Mulvaney himself, Mm -hmm. he is clearly trolling us. Troubling? Trolling. Trolling. Yeah. Yes. Which I'm not sure is bad. In other words, it's very hard to make this point. And to the extent, I mean, it may be that he's just found a niche and that he is exploiting it but it is also possible that he is making a point you know increasingly like i he he is fascinating and i started paying attention i don't know 120 days ago of his girlhood and i was some combination of oh repulsed honestly you know, how dare you? Um, but if if you will admit that this is cosplay, you know, what is it that's happening here? And then the FFS, so good, the facial feminization surgery, out of which he emerged, um, you know, made up and all of this and looked really briefly like, okay, yes, you did have your face sculpted and your throat sculpted so that you look a more compelling version of of a woman-ish no changes to the body at all he just looks like a slim a, a slim and not um not ripped in any way dude um but the in these last couple of weeks these this uh the bud light campaign and the and the nike campaign it's very odd there's like there's five o'clock shadow visible and this made me start to wonder like does he know does is, is oh, he in on he this knows. I, well, I, there's I, no, I, there's no way. But like, somebody... like, why, why would you be showing that? Well, because you know, it was perfectly, it was perfectly possible for him to be totally clean shaven earlier, and presumably he's been on these cross sex hormones for longer now. He should be able to be doing a more compelling job now. Right. But instead, he's just rubbing it in everyone's faces. Well, but that so he's a guy. Let's let's talk about various possibilities of what he might be. Yeah. Right. Imagine that he, I mean, he's obviously, as you have emphasized from the beginning, a very talented person. Right. Right. The role he's playing, he's he's doing a great job and skyrocketing to fame in, in no small part because he is doing this well. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, he could be doing it well out of pure self-interest. Right. This could be, this is how I become famous and influential and rich and it's working and haha. Right. It could be that. Which, given the stint as, among other things, a fake safari leader in videos, like he was, he was looking for the thing that would hit. Right. Right. He was looking for the thing, and he found a thing, and it's not his fault that there's a stupid niche, right? He's found it, and he's figured out how to exploit it. Well, look, my hope would mm-hmm. be that he is actually trying to demonstrate how insane civilization has gone, and that there is a reveal at the end of this, right, where he goes back to being a gay man and. 
uh, he points out how dumb people have been along the way. In that would his be that phony. would be amazing. It'd be epic. That would be epic. Yeah, and that would uh, sure alienate some of your most vociferous followers, Dylan Mulvaney. Um, but that would bring a whole lot of people into uh, into your sphere of influence who at the moment feel simply uh, attacked and insulted and worse by these shenanigans. Yep. And now I don't want him to do it cynically, but if he's been doing this whole thing as an elaborate um, ploy, then the point is, oh, that would be a very interesting reveal. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it would shift exactly who embraces this. Mm -hmm. You know, the quality of people that he hangs out with would be, would jump instantly, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But... Interestingly, actually, like he has now a somewhat long-standing feud with Caitlyn Jenner, mm-hmm. who's like, "Stop it, quit it." Right now, Caitlyn Jenner is, you know, their own situation, and perhaps kind of confused and all of that. But Caitlyn Jenner is responding to some of the things that is happening over in Dylan Mulvaney world, going, "Nope, nope, not." Not what you say you are. That's not actually how it works. Right. And Mulvaney is responding with, you know, crocodile tears and, and, uh, and, you know, girl seeming anger or something. I, you know, the whole thing is a well, that, costume. I mean, that's sort of, we talked about this last week. It is time, it is a long past time for people who are struggling with whatever it is to be trans and the difficulty of those things earnestly to join those of us who are alarmed at trans activism and, you know, something masquerading in this space. And, you know, there are people who do. Um, uh, Buck Angel, I've pointed to, Blair White have both been very good on this issue. Caitlyn Jenner has been more of a mixed bag, but she has also, you know, uh, advocated that uh, trans women not be allowed in women's sports, for example. So anyway. She don't know. Yeah, she ought to know. Exactly. But I mean, apparently she does. So all, all to the good. And to the extent that Dylan Mulvaney turns out to be uh, an elaborate ruse that reveals the insanity of all these people and the um, moral bankruptcy of corporations utilizing transness to sell products to a, an audience that's in the middle of being bamboozled, right? All of that would be beautifully revealed by such a thing. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that a little bit of five o'clock shadow might, you know, telegraph to those who were wondering, you know, what is this person that mm-hmm. this is knowing? So I, I could see that. Yep. But am I right that you would, you would, um, you would welcome the revelation that this whole thing had been a ruse from Dylan Mulvaney and that it leaves open the possibility that, uh, um, that this was well-intentioned, that it took advantage of I think so. Yeah. I mean, I have to think about all the, all the caveats there, but um, I think, I think he's done a lot of damage. Um, He was for the most part um, exploiting an empty niche. Yeah. And, you know, had been someone looking for niches, you know, had been someone with talent looking for niches, tried one, tried the next, tried the next, found one, it hit, he's there. Uh, I do not like the analysis that goes, well, 
I don't like that the niche exists, but given that it exists, I'd be stupid not to take it. Uh, you know, I, I understand that that, yeah, yeah. that, that, you know, that, that can maybe be the case over in like tax law, right? Like it's my obligation to, uh, use the legal loopholes that have been left open, even while I think they shouldn't so have been left open. It's your obligation to, to play the game up to the limit of the law. But if I really think that it's wrong, I can also be working to change the law. But right. it's not—it's not hypocritical to take advantage of the law as it stands. It's—it's it's, in fact, it would be foolish to do anything right. this else. This is different. That's this is different from this that. is different from that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, yes, of you know, to the extent that there are two possible truths here, and there's probably a lot of gray gray area. But the, to the extent that there are two possible truths here, uh, would I welcome? Uh, the that he has been trolling us the whole time, as opposed to uh, the that he is what he appears to be or what he believes to be. Uh, yeah, of course. Okay. Good. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, do you have further you want to go down this road? I mean, we could talk about it forever, but we got a couple other big topics to go. So yeah. So yeah. let me just say in closing, uh, <laughs> a little. A B testing here. Oh, good. You remember last week when you sprung that story? Sprung that story of uh, the uh, the armadillos, big hairy armadillos, big hairy armadillos, with their, and with their nocturnal erections, their, their right? Big, and maybe hairy penises, right? Yes. And my uh, my sense of like, well, okay, but why? I don't really get why people would study such a thing. I understand that it's studyable and there's nothing wrong with studying it, but it's hard for me to imagine how you find yourself there. I mean, have you seen the size of their penises? No. <laughs> I haven't, but... The people who are studying them have. Exactly. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, the point is, all right, so that on the one hand very hard for me to empathize with the person who finds themselves focused on this as a topic. Sports bras, I have no such difficulty. Mm. I see why this is a big field. and there are So lots the of, fact that there are over 22,000 uh, results, not surprising, not to, me surprising to you at all. No, no, that makes perfect sense. Wait, I'm allowed to study that? Okay. <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> like that. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. It's... Okay, <laughs> done. Um, I don't have segues this week at all, really. So do you want to go next or do you want me to go into a totally different topic next? Uh, I guess I could do uh, okay. what I had planned next. All right. So I have been uh, away this week. I was in Austin for a conference of political independence, which was fascinating. There were all sorts of people there. As you might imagine, there was a tremendous amount of conversation about uh, AI and where we find ourselves and that sort of thing. And I wanted to um, talk about a couple things. One, I've now had a number of conversations with some folks who are both directly and indirectly involved in AI work. And I've been talking to them about my biologist perspective on what is unfolding, more or less with the expectation that whether or not my perspective makes sense or it doesn't, that I would be, uh, you know, probably uh, treated as, you know, not comprehending the problem because I'm a biologist and it would take some time for me to demonstrate that actually there was a reason to look at it this way. It's not what happened at all. That's cute, son. This isn't armadillos anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's not Kansas and it ain't armadillos. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so in any, in any case, I've had a number of very interesting conversations. And by and large, the folks I have spoken to have had the sense of, yes, actually, the degree to which you understand the underlying code is of limited value. Right. It's in the same way that understanding ion channels doesn't tell you a whole lot about how the brain processes information. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, it doesn't do it without the ion channels functioning. But really, the point is you're dealing layers up or, yeah. you know, somebody uh, I think it might have been Peter Wang said that, uh, you know, you could imagine that you should study uh, computer science by, you know, looking at solders, soldering, you know, no, it doesn't help you. Right. right? Um, so anyway, the, the biological approach seems to be one that uh, people who are in this area realize is actually absent from a lot of their thinking and likely to be highly relevant. So, okay, that's reassuring. Um, and I've been thinking in the context of this conference where AI played an uncomfortable role, frankly. I was on a couple of different panels, and in both cases, the organizers of the conference saw fit to pose a question to GPT chat for, um, you know, and to sort of introduce it into the conversation as what does the AI think of the topic under discussion? Both times I had an allergic reaction and uh, I left no doubt that I thought it was a terrible mistake to engage the AI in this way uncritically, even if everything it said was accurate. Right? right. For example, imagine that 500 times in a row it gave you a perfectly accurate, maybe even an insightful answer, and that causes you to trust its answer. And then uh, some misalignment issue takes advantage of the trust it's built up and uh, poisons the well. You know, which which people can do too. Like sure. People can lose track. People can have a brain glitch. People like whatever. They can be suddenly deciding to game you because they created trust for the first five hundred interactions. Whatever. But um. But yeah, in this case, the elephant in the room is the AI. What does the AI think? Oh God. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm comfortable with what does the AI think, but it should be done in the context of a deliberate experiment in which one does not process it as just another contributor to the conversation. It is anything but that. You right. do not know what it is doing or why, and it makes sense to not introduce it into a conversation in which you've just asked six people to offer an answer, right? That That's a mistake in my opinion. But yeah. uh, anyway, um, the AI was under discussion by many people, most of them not uh, computer science folks or AI specialists or anything like that. And I realized that there was some missing toolkit that I think is vital. And I, re I started doing it with myself. What I realized was that because of the way, and I'm not saying that we have AGI, but I am saying that I think it's clear that we are about to if we do not already, because of the way that that is going to interact with people's cognition, anything that you think you know about the way people function, for example, the way um, a, a collective action problem causes coordination to break apart, to become unstable as you get towards an objective. Anything you think you know about the way people function, you should now treat with extreme skepticism. 
Mm -hmm. right? Because an AI could interface with that in any way. It could short circuit the breakdown in cooperation and it could cause cooperation to work where you wouldn't expect it to, or it could cause it to break down before you, you would intuit that, right? All, all possibilities are on the table. So in any case, my sense and what I told folks at the conference was, I believe that you should at this point in history decide that you officially know nothing Right, and then go back and check with all of the things that you thought you knew from the prior era and see if there is reason to think they still hold. Right, so basically, a kind of it's a Cartesian emergency. Right, Descartes became very suspicious of things that he couldn't establish uh, himself personally, and we could have a long conversation about that, but never mind. At this moment, there is reason we have crossed. An event horizon. We are in an era in which nobody knows the rules. And if you want to know something, then start with the very first thing you should know, which is that you know nothing. Right? Mm -hmm. If you want to, if you want to be ahead, the way to get ahead is I know nothing, and you'll be ahead of all the people who still think they know something. Um, you know, then you need to rebuild a toolkit. So that's one thing. Second thing is, and I don't know what to do with this, but. We have had a conversation on Dark Horse about what we have called the time-traveling money printer, mm -hmm. which is my admittedly clumsy label for the concept that you can generate the equivalent of inside information if you know what is coming down the pike and you can slow down public awareness of it, mm -hmm. right? So we think that this almost certainly happened with respect to COVID, that it was circulating in September, October at the Wuhan military games, but the public only became aware of it when it was revealed in the very last days of 2019, in December, and that that would have allowed people who had been on the short list, who got a phone call, who knew that, that there was about to be a pandemic that was going to spread around the world, it would have allowed them to position and effectively print money, right? They could do a lot of other things, but at the very least, if you know what stocks are likely to go up and which ones are going to like are, are likely to go down, you can take a small pile of money and you can make it into a huge pile of money. And it would be um, shocking given the obvious moral bankruptcy of the people who would likely have had that information first. It would be shocking if they didn't do it. And there's evidence to say there's a weird delay between September, October of 2019 and December. That's a lot of time. The last day of December. Yeah, the last day of December. Mm -hmm. Right. So, okay, the time-traveling money printer is the equivalent of a time machine, given that time travel apparently doesn't exist, as far as we can tell, right? It functions in financially like a time machine. Right. I mean, time travel doesn't exist, so far as we can tell, in the same way that selection can't see into the future, but selection has figured out a way to see into the future. It's, it's the same, like, metaphorically true right uh that time travel does exist yeah and selection does see into the future uh, but it does so via means that we don't think of as time travel or seeing into the future right now here's the big bummer only one it's big enough that okay. only one is no comfort well i'm sitting down as far as i'm yes you are excellent um if you put on a helmet i'd feel even better um i mean you could fall out of your chair but Let's just agree. I'm going to take the risk. Try. Okay. <laughs> um, if you're going to fall onto the dog, she's, oh, she's soft nice. enough. Oh. So the question is this. Did we really get the cutting edge? We know we didn't get the perfectly cutting edge. Obviously, they developed these things inside of OpenAI, for example, and then reveal them. 
did we get something like the cutting edge? Do we know exactly where we are in the development of this? Is it occurring to all of us simultaneously that we've crossed the event horizon? Or did some of the folks who knew that we were going to cross the event horizon um, pull a time-traveling money printer on us? And the reason that that's such a devastating question is not only would um, you know those assholes have effectively cheated financially again, yeah. but we don't know where we live in the era of AI. If we're playing with GPT-4 and GPT-6 is already in some people's hands, then there's a question about what current events are being affected by forces that we are behind in coming to understand. I'm not saying I know this to have happened. I'm not saying I even think it has happened. I'm saying we would be foolish not to wonder if it has happened. So. Yes. That said, I'm seeing all sorts of stuff I don't get. Mm -hmm. Right now, that was true throughout COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so it may be that we are just living in an era where the algorithms, the non-intelligent um, algorithms and the change that is opaque to us in the way they feed us information is causing people to derange and behave oddly. Mm -hmm. Right, or it could be that there's some degree of AGI that is swirling the pot in some fashion that we do not understand. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to connect this potentially to something, a story that really just started emerging, I think it's today, maybe it's yesterday, um, which is the story of Twitter blocking Substack links. I have an example here. You have Can an example? Show? Yeah. yeah. You want to show it? Yeah. So uh, this was yesterday, um, maybe the day before. Maybe so I should say yeah. obstructing Substack links. Show my screen. Um, so this week, as always, uh, I posted my Substack at 8 a.m. And, uh, and then within a half an hour or so, I tweeted about it with a link. Um, I wrote about my father, uh, who died again 10 years ago. He didn't die again. Who again died 10 years ago this week actually he did die again but that was 10 years ago and then 11 years ago yes the reverse order anyway um <clears throat> i i reprinted i republished something i had written in the days after his death on a website that i created for him and here and here was the tweet and people people liked it and people went there but went and this, so this went out on tuesday of this week and it was engaged with and it was you know liked and retweeted and all of that which was possible then but which apparently is no longer possible, that I am allowed to post something from my Substack, but no one now can like or retweet it. And more egregiously, when I click on this... <clears throat> well, that's good news. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So um, an hour ago, when I clicked on that, what we got was a message that said, uh, this this link, oh boy, I screenshotted it somewhere, but I don't know where this it was. Link this yeah. link may be unsafe. Uh, use caution. Uh, and now it's actually clicking through. So that changed in the last hour. Very Wonderful. interesting. Very positive. Yeah, okay, go on. So let me just give a little bit of history. And I'm not going to be precise about this. I don't think the precision matters. And um, to be honest with you, there was so much debate over what exactly the details of this story, what the simple facts were, that it was a little hard to follow. Mm -hmm. But what happened was uh, Elon Musk apparently made the decision to um, obstruct 
the liking and the traversing of links to Substack. The question of why he did that in, by his analysis was that Substack had behaved in an aggressive way. He said that they had been um, downloading a, it sounded like code, information from Twitter in some form or other uh, in large, um, large quantities in order to effectively use it to bootstrap their own Twitter competitor. In service of creating what they're calling notes. Now, what Substack is calling notes, which does appear to be um, that it is in line to be presented to the world as a competitor and as an alternative to Twitter. Yep. It yeah. does appear that there is a desire on Substack's part as, as a business to mm. create something that would uh, compete for the same users, yep. right? And one can certainly imagine, you know, you and I are not big business people. We've never been big business people. But you can imagine that you have a property and it has capabilities and, you know, allowing somebody to simply create a competing thing, especially if they're going to borrow code or information, would be infuriating and, you know, to the extent that it is legal, legal to obstruct their ability to do this, you could imagine the instinct to do it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Musk has been very aggressive, and many of us have spent considerable political capital defending him in light of the fact that he appeared committed to building a, a platform that was, at least in principle, a, a free speech, public square kind of a place. And the idea that you know the public square will have a corporate brand and it you know that it doesn't exist across multiple platforms is obviously troubling mm -hmm. what's more going after substack is troubling because there are very few properties out there that are really committed to free speech right, right. i can name effectively four big ones right yep you've got twitter you've got substack mm -hmm. you've got Locals, and you've got Rumble, which are now one thing. Well, and Odyssey. And Odyssey is, in, I don't know the details, so I, but smaller. R Rumble and Locals are the same thing. That's why I was lumping that as one. Yep, yeah. I, I see. But they're not the same. But in any case, Rumble you've got... Rumble bought Locals, and so they are now... I, you've I got a see. small number of Rebel platforms mm -hmm. that, are, that constitute a beachhead where free speech is now possible again after an era highlighted in the Twitter files of egregious meddling by everything from the Department of Homeland Security uh, to Facebook to all of the other platforms. So yeah. that's tremendously important. And it's important. I, I get that there's a business angle here, but mm -hmm. it's important at a level that uh, is profound for civilization. And mm -hmm. so Whatever is going on would be great if it got navigated such that the business folks could do the business stuff they need to do without disrupting the possibility that a year and a half from now or two years down the road, there will still be a place for free speech to uh, to manifest, at least in principle. So it's very alarming. What's more alarming is that in the battling, the so there, there was an initial alarm by many of us at what this blocking of Substack links was, because Substack is such a vital player in terms of long-form uh, content that runs against the, the it, narrative. It, it hands agency back to writers. It allows writers to be freelance and to actually make a living without um, 
without needing to be in the good graces of an editor or an institution. And Twitter is, for, for many of us, the way that we distribute our work to audiences that haven't yet found us. Right. So um, it is a shining beacon in a otherwise quite dark sea mm -hmm. from the point of view of people looking for, for a long-form place. And Twitter is the obvious, it's the place where we exchange very short things, including, hey, take a look at my Substack. Yep. So what was most alarming here was that Elon Musk went after Matt Taibbi, who is obviously caught in this exact bind. He has been releasing the Twitter files on Twitter in tweet threads, which are, to be honest, kind of clumsy because Twitter was never intended as a journalistic platform in that way. Mm -hmm. And he has been exploring the same issues at length on his Substack. Um, yep. And so there was... Um, there was back and forth between uh, Musk and Taibbi, and effectively Musk appeared to burn Taibbi in public, which is a shocking and disastrous development from the point of view of those of us who would like to know what the history we've just been through was about, right? Mm -hmm. The Twitter files is the best evidence we have to date of what that was really about. Yep. Taibbi has been... Um, steadfast and uh, ruthlessly journalistic. He has just uh, suffered a, um, what would you call it, a character assassination pseudo-interview uh, in which, mm. yeah. So mm -hmm. anyway, in other words, you know, we've been defending Musk in his creation of a free speech platform and equally defending Taibbi as one of the few shining lights in journalism. Mm -hmm. And Taibbi caught straddling the gap between Twitter and Substack should be exactly the case that tells you actually you have to be very careful how you navigate whatever business conflict there is there because the world of people who matters is using both of these platforms. Yep. And so anyway, there's a lot of concern. I have, I have talked to many people, um, all most or all of them supporters of Musk in his quest to liberate Twitter and make it a, a place where uh, free speech, at least in principle dominates. Um, and nobody understands why he would do this. It's it's confusing. So hard to know what to make of it. I do worry that it has something to do. But you know, may be reversed now. Right. I've, I mean, I've tried it, as you've been talking, just tried a few ways in, not as me, different accounts. And it, they all see, the, the links seem to be working now that I've tried. So great. If you go to uh, Musk's Twitter, does he um, say anything about it? It doesn't look like a... What was the top tweet? Uh, it, a meme you were arguing with strangers on Twitter here. It's yeah, from yeah. nine hours ago. Okay, yeah. so something has changed. Unclear why. Maybe cooler heads have prevailed. That would be fantastic. Let me just say, in closing this chunk out, mm -hmm. that watching Substack and Twitter battling in this way as somebody who uh, exists in this very tenuous beachhead with free speech as um, the most important tool at our disposal, 
It was a little like um, watching somebody meddle with history where on D-Day you've got the forces on Omaha Beach shelling the forces on Utah Beach, and D-Day doesn't work if this happens. So it's really important that those... Actors can just sit back and be like, cool, go for it. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So really, I, you know... I don't know. Unfortunately, we are looking at a world that has been messed up by the fact that when you have business in conflict with other values, the other values collapse. And we can't have that happen here. The other values are too important. We're really talking about the future of the West and the future of the West. I I know because Musk has been very clear about this. The future of the West depends on our ability to discuss these things openly, which depends on having platforms in which that's possible. So, uh, Please, um, let's uh, let's put those things out of the line of fire. Indeed. All right, that's you good. Yep. All right. Um, again, we're not good on segways this week. This Nobody's is... good on a segway. Everybody looks like a dork. It's spelled differently. It is. Yeah, you know that actually I didn't know until um, a long time after the Segway came and went and it was supposed to have been this, you know, the, the new mode by which we all get along. Ginger. Along, around Ginger, exactly. It was yeah. called Ginger in advance. No one knew what it was. And, yeah. Uh, and then it came out and people were like, I don't, nah, that's a pass. Well, it took decades to re- re-emerge as the thing it always needed to be and now it exists but nobody knows because they spent so much time laughing at the Segway on Arrested Development and elsewhere. And the thing now is electric unicycles and, and other... Yeah, other personal electric vehicles which have yeah. come a long way. And believe me, the scooter is not the end-all and be-all of that space. Electric unicycle, strange as it may look, is uh, a fantastically capable, tremendously fun device. Now, back before we started doing these live streams, but when Dark Horse already existed, yeah. you were talking about actually spending an episode or two or eight or something on electric vehicles and specifically electric unicycles uh, because you and our two sons um, have become expert, excerpt, mm, boy, is it just language <laughs> is not working for me today. Um, expert on them. And uh, we have, we have a fleet. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> my God. And, you know, of all sizes and ranges and capacities and uh, have also had a couple of other electric vehicles, but it's the electric unicycles that the three of you have, you know, you've, uh, the boys have commuted to school and. I used to commute to uh, downtown Portland. Used to, back when we had an office in downtown Portland, it would be a long commute from here now that we live on an island, but yeah, you, know, you, you need to recharge. Yes. Uh, True. And uh, you might not want to take the the five, the I five down. No, definitely yeah. not. But, um, but you should do that. Like you, you should, you should, you should talk in more depth than what we're doing now. Which, frankly, for most people, going to be like an electric what now? Electric what now is exactly it. It's it's <laughs> you've probably seen them. It's one wheel with two little platforms. Zach's going to pull it up. either side. Yeah. Uh, yeah, pull up a good one. Yeah, we keep talking. Um, but anyway, it's two pedals either side. And here's the thing, okay? It looks weird, but it is very similar to downhill skiing. Very similar to downhill skiing, except that it's powered, so you can go uphill. Um, and you can go fast and don't fall off. But it's... Um, yeah, and wear motorcycle gear, because uh, falling off it is not like a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Oh, there we go. No. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, okay. So, so here uh, we... I, I am reminded, though, and Zach probably will not want this to happen, but um, as we were living, leaving Olympia, uh, which uh, would have been when Zach was 13, I think, maybe, um, he made, he produced a video of him, mostly him and his brother, on electric unicycles zipping around the Evergreen Campus and other places in Olympia, and this. and put it to what was the song you put it to? You got um, feels like feels feels like summer by Weezer. It was fantastic, and you actually showed it to the people at the school that you were trying to get into, and they I think loved it's it. still up. We should we should link it. Well, I oh, we so I <laughs> I, don't I think know, it's I, think I don't it's know fantastic. why we wouldn't link it. It was great. In he, fact, Weezer liked it. That's right. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway, here you have a, a guy uh, ready to get started on what looks like an in motion V11. Uh, this is a this is one of the first of the uh, electric unicycles with suspension. Um, the, I am not a big suspension guy on bicycles, but on electric unicycles, it makes a huge positive difference. Why? Because you like your knees. Um, because when you're riding a single wheel, you know, you can hit a bump and it can launch you, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, skill on a bicycle is enough. Yeah. You're like, to... okay, I'm going to stay on my pedals now and I'm not going to, I don't yeah. need the suspension because I, I have the suspension built in, but you can't do that as much on one wheel. You can, you but got it's one harder. One point of connection and, to the ground. Yeah. Um, I, I say as someone who's biked a lot, mountain biked a lot, but is yet to try my hand at these objects. These, yeah. Your hand is uninvolved. Right. Well, uh, but, uh, but anyway, they're cool. They're really cool. I'm not saying they're safe, but they are cool. And not at all. <laughs> you, all of you, when you ride them, wear full face helmets, and mm -hmm. you do also wear, you know, motorcycle jackets and motorcycle gear and um, wrist guards, wrist guards and, and, and shin guards. And you don't push the speed limit because you can. The speed uh, limit of the vehicle, not of the right. road. The speed limit of the vehicle mm -hmm. actually, uh, if you push it, you can cause a drain on the battery that the motor cannot sustain well, really, really simply you could just fall off the front if you're going faster than it's going it's, yes that's true that's the re i don't know you don't have to involve batteries let's put it this way there that is sounds terrible there are two yeah. meaningful limits uh when it comes to electric unicycles one limit is how fast the machine is capable of going and how rapidly it can accelerate and then there's how fast a smart person would go and how fast a smart person would allow themselves to accelerate. Those are different limits. So anyway, live to live to electric our, our almost 19 day. year old. Well, that's just the here. wrong point. It's not that you're saying anything exactly incorrect, but it's really, really simple that you can lean forward beyond the speed at which it can keep up to you and you'll just fall off the front and it'll kind of run you over and you'll affect the gravity. It's not, <laughs> yeah, you're so really, well, then it'll drive off. Into the well, not exactly, but no, I don't know. Ball. I don't know why you need any of the, to say there are multiple limits or anything. It's just that if I'm you just are trying to emphasize that, uh, a lot of the dangers can be taken care of by not being a dope. Um, well, not all of them. I think the biggest danger is that it's a black box, and unlike anything with more than one wheel, if it fails, you're completely yes, relying on it. it. Does not does not fail safely. Actually, it's not true. There are some pills. Yes, well, no, 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 no. If you exceed certain limits, a well designed one like the one you have on the screen will force you to slow down and hop off rather than fail while you're writing. I'm not book. gonna argue about this, but I don't think that's the failure mode I was talking about at to all. To my initial point, mm -hmm. there's one, two, six, eight 
podcasts in the topic of electric vehicles and electric unicycles in particular. And one of those uh, podcasts could be a conversation between you and one or both of your sons. Uh, one of them is now shaking his head in some disgust at your um, right blockheadedness, I think. Blockheadedness, the, what, yes. the word that he just mouthed to me. No, he didn't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. I, no, I agree. I, it's an interesting topic. I have been meaning to, to do that podcast. Yeah, <clears throat> or podcasts. Could be. Could be. All right. Um, finally today, totally different, uh, totally different topic. I want to share a few excerpts from uh, this book, Serious Adverse Events, An Uncensored History of AIDS by Celia Farber, uh, with a foreword by Mark Crispin Miller. This was published in 2006, and it basically became impossible to find. Uh, she also wrote, Celia Farber wrote an article in, oh God, now I've forgotten, um, and I've closed down Acrobat. Uh, I think it was Harper's, it might have been Atlantic, I think it was Harper's, um, and it's not coming open for me, um, in 2006 as well, which is still available, which you, which you can find. But uh, what has happened now in um, last month is that the excellent publishing house Chelsea Green has republished this book. And uh, I encourage everyone to get it and to read it. I am going to be um, sort of reviewing it and, and publishing a little excerpt on my Substack this week on Tuesday on Natural Selections. And I wanted to share a few short excerpts here today. Um, again, it is, it, you know, it is a, it's called Serious Adverse Events by Celia Farber. Uh, republished by Chelsea Green uh, Publishers, and she walks through the history of AIDS, which those of us who were, you know, we were young teenagers as AIDS uh, came on the scene, and uh, my mother had a number of gay male friends in a couple of different domains in her life, and so I remember being um, very uh, very struck by and af affected by this sudden scourge that was mostly afflicting gay men in, in the United States. So if I may add one bit of color to that. Yeah. I remember most profoundly the era where the syndrome had been recognized. It was clear that it was circulating amongst gay men, yeah. but there was no awareness of what might be causing it. And I remember the... Uh, the searching for a plausible cause in light of the way that this thing spread across a population, um, that that was a very frightening era where nobody knew what it was that was causing it, and um, and uh, they were looking for some explanation that you know there was an investigation of like sex toys and lubricants and things is it some toxin? Uh, so anyway, that was a very uh, remarkable era. To, to watch science try to wrap its mind around around this uh, disease yeah and um, you know one of the one of the things in this book is uh, the the proposal by not one not two but but several scientists some of whom are Nobel Prize winners like Kerry Mollis, uh, that the conclusion that was arrived at apparently after you know all of this all of this research and you know extraordinarily well uh, defended, which is that HIV is the single causal factor in AIDS, um, isn't true. And those scientists 
who made these claims were then, and um, to a large degree remain now, uh, unable to, to speak about it and, you know, lost, lost their labs, lost their graduate students, lost their, lost their grants, lost their ability to publish, uh, because you were not allowed to, to say this thing. And as Carrie Mullis uh, says, and I think this is in, I don't have it on my screen here, I think it's in what I'm going to um, put in together for my, for natural selections. Uh, he says, I just started asking people, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing about this again. He won the Nobel Prize for the invention of PCR, okay, of polymerase chain reaction, uh, which also then was the tool used for tests for AIDS and now tests for COVID, which he did not think was the appropriate use of PCR. Separate story. Uh, he, in writing about uh, AIDS, uh, at conferences and, and such would approach people and say, okay, I'm writing about this. And um, my you know, opening sentence is what everyone knows, right? Which is that HIV causes AIDS. I just want a reference. I just want a reference because um, what you do in science is you reference everything that isn't such long established common knowledge that there can be no reference, right? Things, honestly, things like um, mammals are sexually reproducing species with two and only two sexes. That is such commonly established knowledge that there isn't any primary reviewed literature that says that because we've known that for so long. Um, but anything that is newly, uh, newly discovered, even if everyone seems to believe it, uh, or um, that there is any disagreement about whatsoever, you're supposed to reference, you're supposed to have a citation so that other scientists and anyone else who wants to can go in and, and basically um, track, track the argument back and say, you know, I, I'm not sure I believe that or, oh, interesting, let me, let me get to the base of that. Let me see on what basis we know that and, and go there. And um, Carrie Mullis report, reported, he is dead now, um, reported that when he was asking this of people in the um, 80s and 90s, um, can I just get the reference on that? Any reference, there must be lots, uh, that no one ever came up with one. And uh, that <clears throat> to him and to all scientists should, should be enough to raise suspicions about on what basis it is uh, that we have a conclusion that is so universally agreed upon when um, it is both new and there doesn't appear to be a single piece of research uh, that establishes that it is true. A couple things. One, when I first heard that Carrie Mullis was not a believer... HIV denialist. Uh, yeah, I, I misunderstood it. I thought, oh, this is a chemist underappreciating the complexity of the problem. There are reasons mm -hmm. that you might have a syndrome that is generally caused by a virus that is not inherently caused by a virus because other things can interrupt the cascade of uh, physiological pathways, um, etc. Mm -hmm. I did not really understand the argument that he was making. I would also point out it's not just Carrie Mullis. It's also oh, yeah. Luc Montagnier, yep. who is... Uh, who actually discovered HIV. Exactly, and believed it, it to be causal. It, was, it wasn't Gallo who took credit for it and, and made the claim um, yeah. that HIV uh, is the only causal factor in AIDS, although even he backed off from that briefly. Um, but it was Luc Montagnier. It was Luc Montagnier, mm -hmm. and he is also now dead. He was very old, unlike Carrie Mullis, who died recently and was not so old. Um, but in any case, Luc Montagnier changed his position, even though that was at great personal expense. A, it damaged his credibility, probably should not have, but damaged his credibility. And B, his great achievement uh, 
was the the contribution of the discovery of this, and so the recognition that it might not be as important as he had originally thought uh, suggested uh, a very honorable scientist, somebody mm. who would reverse his position even though it decreased the importance of his role in the history of science. Yes. Okay, a couple of a couple of short. Oh wait, one more thing. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to point out why it is that we should be able to ask anything that is not common knowledge, you know, that is so longstanding that we uh, can't find the original reference, that you should just always be able to have a reference. And I want to point out that the Telomere story, which mm -hmm. many uh, listeners of this podcast will be familiar with. And which is relevant here. There's, there's a whole lot in this book about um, drug safety and drug safety testing. Drug safety testing. And there's a whole lot uh, about things like COVID that involves the degradation of tissues which will accelerate aging. So anyway, this, this is a highly relevant topic. But the obstacle to figuring out that little puzzle was an erroneous result. The result was what the people who had done the work said it was, but it didn't mean what they said it was. You had to be able to go back and figure out that they had all gotten their mice from a related source in order to understand that actually that source was polluting our understanding of uh, basically mouse telomeres. We thought they were much longer than they actually are because it was laboratory mice that had had their telomeres elongated by a breeding program that uh, selected for long telomeres. So anyway, it's a perfect case where, you know, there's a two-week period in which I was trying to figure out why this piece of information that everybody stated casually as if it was just, you know, so clearly right that, you know, it was, it was like, bedrock hmm. how could it possibly not be right and the answer was oh they all ordered their mice from the same place right so you have to be able to trace it back for that kind of reason yes yes exactly so here's a <clears throat> short excerpt from excuse me the beginning of the book uh page 29 today's scientists are wholly dependent for their survival upon the will of a conjoined financial megalopolis connecting government academia and the biotech and pharmaceutical industries again this book was written in 2006 if you talk to them they almost all speak of fear fear of losing their funding minds attuned consciously and unconsciously to the roar of the industry scientists writing grants that are designed to feed and fuel it writing more and more grants in shorter and shorter intervals than ever before says Richard Stroman. You have to write a grant a year almost, and you have to write four to get one if you're any good. I got out just in time. Everybody who's still in there says the same thing. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Before the biotech boom, we never had this incessant urging to produce something useful, meaning profitable. Under these circumstances, everybody is caught up in it. Grants, millions of dollars flowing into laboratories, careers and stars being made. The only way to be a successful scientist today is to follow consensus. The academy has become the technology it invented. It's lost its scientific edge and replaced it with a technology that follows the market. The tension between the two is that science is primarily a generator of surprises, whereas technology is anything but surprises. If you're going to produce something and put it on the market, you don't want any goddamn surprises. You've got the next quarter to report and you don't want any bad news. It's all about the short term now. So that's part of the setup for um, what we then see with regard to how the rapid consensus around uh, the single um, retroviral cause of AIDS was arrived at, and also then um, the treatments. The, um, now we know 
largely not safe and not effective treatments uh, that were pushed to market very fast, uh, things like AZT and protease inhibitors uh, for AIDS. A couple more short excerpts. Again, from Serious Adverse Events by Celia Farber. The figures we are always given for H, this is in a chapter called What About Africa? The figures we are always given for HIV seroprevalence in Africa are based on sample studies taken at a few select prenatal clinics. I cannot reproduce all of them here because the figures are like billowing cloud formations, always very big, very round figures, always estimates, and always capped with a line like, experts say the real figure could be three times that high, which means that the numbers are arbitrarily arrived at in the first place. I once spoke to a UN AIDS official in a casual setting. He was sitting at a bar and we struck up a conversation. Not to insult you, I said, but the figures your organization puts out are pure fiction. Pure fiction, he confirmed, leaning against the bar with his elbow. Why then do you put them out? Money, he said. It's all about fundraising. High figures bring in money. When you get such officials face to face, caught off guard, they tend to tell you the truth in simple language. One more. So wait, 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 wait. Mm -hmm. So A, that brings to mind Veritas, Project Veritas, and its yeah. um, mechanism for discovering what's going on by, you know, having somebody go on a date with somebody and yep, yep. Uh, recording it. You know, these people, they're, they're not in the dark about what they're doing. They're just in the dark when they think that they're on the record. And, you know, it's unfortunate that one has to get them off the record in order to uh, discover the reality. I also wanted to point out that consensus science reared its ugly head again this week where Neil deGrasse Tyson was being interviewed by Del Bigtree and doubled down on the idea that it was all about, you know, that science is effectively synonymous with the consensus, which is exactly the opposite of the truth. Everything in science is falsifiable. I used to make this point when we were professors, when I was a professor, I'd ask some question and I'm not coming up with a good question right now. I'd say, okay, how many people believe X? Knowing that there was, this was a question on which people um, would have an opinion because it sounded right, but it didn't turn out to be true as far as we understand it right now. Mm -hmm. And I get more than half the people in the class to raise their hands. And I'd say, well, luckily for us, science isn't a democracy. Scientific truth isn't established by democratic vote. It's not majority rule. That's not how it works. And I don't understand how um, I was able to make that point over and over and over again to undergraduates, uh, many of whom had, uh, you know, very little background at all in scientific thinking before I met them or you met them, and they got it. And Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't get it? Well, I mean, I think, I don't want to say it's inexcusable, though I think it probably is. Yeah. But the problem is that so few people have intimate contact with actual science as it takes place, right? Even people who have formally gotten degrees in this thing, you have to run an experiment and it has to be properly structured so that the philosophy of science is manifest in the structure of what you did in the lab or in the field. Yeah. And the idea that you can do every single other thing right Right? There can be no way that anybody who walked into your work could detect that you weren't behaving scientifically. And if you just screwed up you know, the philosophy of science part, 
if, for example, you collected data not knowing what you were doing, you spotted a pattern in the data, and then you reported that pattern as if you had had the hypothesis going in, right? If that's the only perturbation on normal science, you fucked it up. You didn't do science. You don't have a scientific conclusion. You don't know anything. And so the idea that, that something so concrete as science could be dependent on something so abstract as, well, did the hypothesis precede the data collection or not? You know, or in the weird case that the data was already collected, but if you formulated the hypothesis, insulated from information uh, that's in data in the library, and then you went to the library, that's valid, right? But just because the data pre-existed your hypothesis, if you weren't aware of it, you can still make a prediction. Yeah, it's not post-diction if you are truly insulated from this, mm -hmm. uh, the evidence. But anyway, these are very subtle things on which a process that mostly is quite concrete that involves, you know, beakers or transects or, you know, actual physical things, right? It, the only reason this process works is the underlying philosophy of science, which almost nobody who does the work has studied. Right. And I, I mean, I do, I guess my prediction would be that um, those scientists who work at scales that are inherently abstract to humans or with an interface between what they are studying and themselves that is technological and therefore black boxy are more likely to misunderstand this. That uh, being field scientists, as we have been and are, uh, you go out and you are looking and working at exactly the scale that humans interact with. And uh, the yeah, yes, there's plenty of theoretical you know underpinnings, and you're you know hoping to to see something empirical and small that you can then generalize. So you know you're doing hypothetical deduction, doing you're engaging in both induction and deduction. Um, but there is there is stuff that you are observing that is real and interpretable with your own senses at the scales at the scale that humans can understand it. There is no inherent or at least not always a technological interface, and uh, there is no inherent level of abstraction uh, between you and what you are observing. And that's not to say that there isn't bias, there's always bias, uh, but uh, that does, I think, make it easier to understand why the philosophy of science is so necessary and also just to engage in it with integrity and go like, okay, I can tell when I'm not doing this because all the other all the other frills all the technology all the abstraction of you know doing astronomy or you know doing molecular biology if it's about inferring you know what the uh, what the genes are requires that you have put some faith in the technology is giving me a rendition of the truth well there's also Neil deGrasse Tyson is one of a tiny number of scientists whose job is to interface with the public, right? Yeah, That's but it wasn't all along. I mean, he, right. he's not a science communicator right. by training. He was a, he was an astrophysicist who became Trained primarily a science communicator. And, science communicator, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, but what I would point out is every scientist has some small portion of their job that is public facing, right? The mm -hmm. scientist who is working on genomics and then goes to a cocktail party with people who 
do other things in the world, journalists, mm -hmm. lawyers, doctors, whatever, that person sees themselves as having a role speaking for science, right? They are yep. in the interface between the science-trained folks and the non-trained folks. And the point is they are presenting in their own minds, you know, a simplified, an intuitive version that allows somebody who doesn't have the training to look into what they do for a living. And the point is, actually, this is a process that gets carried away, you know, mm -hmm. whereas you and I might be the, you know, the skunk at the garden party where somebody is talking about the wonderful things that are going on in university uh, science departments, and we might roll our eyes and say, do you have any idea how crazy these people are, right? You're not supposed to say that. Mm -hmm. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is the far end of this continuum where his job is actually to promote a sort of beautified version of science. And what would it sound like if a guy like Neil deGrasse Tyson started to become alarmed, you know, let's say 10 years ago about p-hacking and the replication crisis, right? If he got alarmed about that before it became public, right? People would not know what to make of it. If somebody who was supposed to be portraying science as this marvelous process through which we come to understand was actually saying, actually, you know what we're doing? You know, we're lying to ourselves. Like, come on, man, have some gravitas. R right. Get so, serious. You know, yeah. it is his obligation if he understood that such a thing was taking place to do that. But right. I think the problem is this sort of sense of, well, I have a private understanding of how high quality the science in my department is, and then I have an obligation uh, to portray it as better than it is in public. It's the same thing as like when, when a school, you know, if you are leading a tour uh, of a college and you are portraying the place to prospective students, your role is actually to advertise the place, which... Right. Yep. You shouldn't, right? You actually, your your obligation to the people that you're giving the tour is actually to give an honest assessment of what the place is. Well, but it's, yeah, it's your obligation to your employer or to the people who you're in front of right now. This is the, that tension exists in many many places, right? That's it. And so yeah. to to just finish that off, you, you know, a guy like Neil deGrasse Tyson sits down with Dell Bigtree, and mm. in his mind, his obligation is to reveal that a guy like Dell Bigtree is. Off the deep the end. Plot, yeah. Right. Uh, and in fact, no, <laughs> it's the other way around. Right. Okay. One more excerpt from this important book, Serious Adverse Events and Uncensored History of AIDS, newly republished, originally published in 2006, newly republished by Chelsea Green, publish, uh, publishers, I want to say publishers, publishing house, um, <clears throat> by Celia Farber. From the same chapter, What About Africa? Uh, she is in uh, the Rakai district of Uganda. She reports, a man walked over to greet me, clasping my hand. Because I am white, he immediately, and this was in, um, sorry, what, what year was this? This is early aughts. Um, I'm not financial. This is early aughts. She's um, in Africa with a few other people. A man walked over to greet me, clasping my hand. Because I am white, he immediately assumed I was there on behalf of a Western AIDS group and that I was going to preach the importance of condom use. Holding my hand in his, he said imploringly, Madam, let me tell you something about us. We must procreate. The advice to use a condom every time in rural Uganda is clearly absurd, considering how many children they bear and how many die in infancy. Embarrassed, I assured him I was not there to preach condom use, but to ask some questions about AIDS. Terrible, he said, shaking his head. I have had two brothers and one sister die of AIDS already. I'm sorry, I said. What did they die of? Slim, 
AIDS. I mean, what was the cause of death? Ah, well, my brother, for instance, he had malaria, and we couldn't afford to get him treatment, so he died. So he died of untreated malaria, I said. Yes, malaria. Why did you say he died of AIDS? He shrugged. Slim. AIDS. It's a formula for everything here. When somebody dies, we call it slim. The WHO had allotted $6 million for AIDS for 1992 and 93, around the time I was there. This is earlier than I thought, sorry. All other infectious diseases combined, barring tuberculosis, received only $57,000. $6 million for AIDS, $57,000 for all other diseases combined, in a place with a lot of tropical diseases. Perhaps it is no wonder, Farber continues, that healthcare workers there have learned to call everything AIDS. What I'm going to write about uh, for my substack this week, and what should be obvious from the couple of excerpts that I've read here today, uh, and what has been pointed out by others, including, for instance, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in his um, in his endorsement of this book, uh, are some of the similarities um, between uh, how the AIDS epidemic and crisis progressed and how consensus was apparently arrived at early and often, and uh, with which there was no dissent that would be allowed, and, of course, COVID. And it is, um, it is a remarkable set of similarities to consider as we look forward, as we must, uh, and think about what will come next. Yeah, it's striking. What you see is a game in which a player has become expert. Yeah. You see that there is a way of causing, in this case, a continent to react according to a narrative that is convenient to the incentivizer, right? And the idea, you know, we saw this with COVID, of course, where the idea was everybody who died died of COVID, which made COVID seem that much more significant and therefore caused that much more alarm, which caused that much more power to flow to those who had caused the miscategorizing and then we saw, you know, hospitals complicit, uh, effectively paid to categorize things as COVID. Mm-hmm. So, of course, their natural fiscal sensibility would cause them to participate in amplifying an incorrect understanding of how common this disease was and how much it was responsible for. Again, to whom is their obligation? Right. Right. Those patients are already dead. Yeah. Who, who loses? Who loses, it might seem, to the hospital administrator uh, if we call that and that and that a COVID death or an AIDS death? If that will cause more funds to flow and isn't our job uh, to do the good and honorable work of medicine, which requires money, and isn't it okay to tell this little white lie, perhaps? And maybe if you compel yourself that it isn't okay to tell yourself that little white lie, um, because you realize it's not a little white lie, it's a lie, but it's not a little white lie, then you come to engage in self-deception sufficiently that you believe your own press, and you no longer understand that you are, in fact, lying. First, do no harm to shareholder value. Something like that. Yeah, it's pretty pretty upsetting in the degree to which um, the parallels from 
prior chapters that we didn't know anything about personally uh, mirrors the horrors that we've just lived through and had to rediscover yep. in real time. Indeed. Okay, well, that was depressing. <laughs> and now we're leaving. Yes, well, <laughs> give you something to think about. Yeah. Um, seriously, though, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to write a little bit more about this for uh, Natural Selections this week, but, um, but get this book, Serious Adverse Events, An Uncensored History of AIDS. Uh, it, will, it will blow your mind. Yeah. Uh, and I, I highly recommend it. Um, okay. Have we arrived? We have arrived and we are about to leave. <laughs> we have arrived and we are about to leave. And, um, you know, check out, check out our Patreons right now at mine. As I said before, you can ask questions for the private uh, monthly Q&A that'll happen in a couple weeks. We're not going to be here next week and we're not doing a Q&A this week, uh, but we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, if you're looking for more content in the meantime, you can always um, go look at past episodes um, or clips or check out my writings on natural selections, which, again, if you go to Twitter, you can click through now, which is progress. Progress. Interesting. Um, and, you know, fantastic. So any other announcements before we sign off? I don't think so. I will undoubtedly remember <laughs> what I should have announced shortly after we have closed this episode. Yeah, probably so. That happens. Yep. That happens. Okay. Well, until we see you next time, guys, be good to the ones you love. Eat good food and get outside. Be well, everyone.